0: Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 6, Ecclesiastes 6, this morning we will be looking at the entire chapter, we will call this Get Beyond the Sun, key words for our worshipers in training are soul, wise and fool. Now it seems at this point, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has been tirelessly driving at the same issue, namely, that the world will not satisfy, life is short, don't make it about money and possessions, enjoy your life by fearing God. He says, in essence, trust me, bells, whistles, shiny objects are not what they seem stop chasing them, stop groping for them, and start living with meaning, start living with purpose. And so Solomon's effort this entire time has been to push us, to push God's people, to get beyond the sun. To stop this life of living under the sun. Now he remember, he keeps coming back to this issue of Under the sun. Living under the sun. In other words, living as a part of this world. Living as one who is seeking joy, who is seeking meaning, who is seeking satisfaction in the things that this world provides. Money, possessions, leisure, entertainment. Whatever it might be, Solomon has said time and time again, if your life consists of only that which is found under the sun, it is vanity. There is no ultimate meaning. It's a wash. It's a waste of time. And in chapter 3, very briefly, he introduced us to the idea of living under heaven. Living under heaven. Living beyond the sun with the greater reality that God is there. And God gives us purpose. God gives us meaning. God gives us a source of joy. And that source of joy is Christ Jesus himself. And so this life under the sun is tiresome and difficult and frustrating and stressful and anxious. And when it's all said and done, it means nothing. So we must get beyond the sun. And that's where we are this morning. How do we do that? How do we get beyond the sun? Remember back in chapter 3, Solomon wrote briefly about God's providence under heaven. He wrote, everything is beautiful in its time. All providential things in this life are placed in our hearts that we will intentionally... I argued that God makes us intentionally frustrated with this broken, fallen, and twisted world. So that we will long for eternity. God has placed eternity in our hearts. And our frustration under the sun is to drive us to God himself. And in chapter 4, we saw that if we're not finding community to link arms with, to do life with, we will have an even more difficult time navigating life. We will be even more frustrated because we were created for relationships. And God's people were created specifically for community in the local church. So now in chapter 6... Solomon is giving us a sort of big sweeping reminder of where we've been. There is no satisfaction in your riches, in your work, in your possessions. And this is just because it is life under the sun. So I will say up front, bear with me, because the first 12 verses are very bleak. And if you're looking ahead, there's only 12 verses in the whole chapter. So Solomon is going to list a series of disappointments that left him deeply dissatisfied, followed by questions with answers that only God can give. And often this is, this is like what life is like for us, a lot of disappointment with a lot of questions for and about God. So let's look at those disappointments. First, disappointment with possessions. Look at verses 1 and 2. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil, So this man has it all, but he doesn't enjoy it. It's acquisition without satisfaction. And here's the evil, Solomon writes. God has given wealth. God has given stuff. God has given power and honor. Yet if you have no ability to enjoy these things, which God has not given to one under the sun, it's a grievous evil could also translate that as a malignant disease or an evil sickness the fact that we could have so much and enjoy so little is an evil sickness i think solomon's talking right to us as americans you people have all of these great things to enjoy But you're not able to because you're so busy going after more and more and more. He's saying you're sick. No satisfaction, no lasting joy, no depth in life. What sickness? How is he able to conclude all of this? How do you know, Solomon? How do you say, I'm not happy? Well, Solomon, remember, had a thousand times more of everything that you'll ever have and has pushed every bit of it to the max. And the result? No peace, no joy, no rest. Only discontentment, stress, and anxiety. I think Solomon earned the right to speak directly to this, far greater than any other. And while it seems to be very repetitive over the last few weeks, I'm convinced that we could preach the same thing week in and week out, and we will still all seek to hold on to bits and pieces of the world because it seems so attractive to us. But Solomon reminds us, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. And all that we have had, all that we have never been able to enjoy, eventually will go to someone else who we never knew. Psalm 39.6 says, Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Now, every once in a while when I'm around the television, I like to uh, look on the History Channel. There's a show on there, and it's called American Pickers. Or perhaps you've seen that. These guys travel all over the country and they look for someone whose house has a bunch of junk sitting out front and they'll go there and they will ask them if they can sort through their junk and they're trying to find stuff that they could bring back and sell at their antique store. It's really amazing to see what people hold on to. But what I find interesting is that often all of the stuff that they have is stuff that they've accumulated not because they've necessarily gone out and bought it and found it and brought it home, but because their parents and their grandparents have done so. And so some of these people have sheds and trailers and just barns and yards full of stuff. It's all over. And these guys go out and they dig through things that have been there for 15 and 20 years, and they pull it out. And then all of a sudden, something that's been there under the sun and the rain... And everything that could go on, all of a sudden, to this person, is worth something. It's been in their backyard for 20 years, but now they want $200 for it. But as I think about that, I think about Solomon's point here. That someone, at some time, found that item. They gathered it. They collected it. They brought it home. They found value in it. And now there's some stranger sorting through all of it and pulling it out, and it's theirs to enjoy The person who got it initially, they don't even know who they are. They're dead, they're gone. All of their possessions are in a huge heaping pile in the backyard of one of their children or grandchildren. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. So Solomon has helped us to see all along that life has very little to do with our income and our possessions, and has everything to do with whether or not we are seeking joy in God, knowing that He is our only source of true satisfaction. As we saw in the beginning of chapter 5, the fear of the Lord is not just the beginning of knowledge, as the Proverbs rightly says, but it is also the only source of real satisfaction. If we are not fearing God, we will have no satisfaction. And until we learn by God's grace to enjoy God's gifts as gifts in order to direct our affections toward Him, then more and more things will not help. If we cannot get beyond the sun, we will continue to live meaningless, painful, confusing lives of one disappointment after another. And if this is your life, Solomon's conclusion is really a cold slap across the face. Look at verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that his stillborn child is better off than he. So he presents to us this hypothetical man. In Hebrew culture, this man would have been considered very well-off. Externally, he was blessed more than any other. He had a hundred sons and daughters. And verse 6 will tell us that he he lived to be 2,000 years old. As a Hebrew, old age and a lot of children meant God's favor in a person's life. But Solomon is presenting all of this to say his life, regardless of all the external, is still empty. He's godless and therefore, notice the word he says, he says his soul is not satisfied. He has no satisfaction with the goodness of life that God has given him. even in the end to the point that he didn't receive a decent burial, and to be left unburied in their culture was considered a curse from God. So he had all this blessing, but in the end, he was really cursed. So we can have everything that the world sees as a blessing and still die godless, unsatisfied, unknown, and dishonored. This is Solomon's next disappointment. Satisfaction is not guaranteed. Honor and respect are also not guaranteed. I wonder if you ever think about what will be said at your funeral. I do. I think about that from time to time. If I'm ever involved in doing a funeral, I certainly do. I wonder what some of you might say at mine. Some of you shouldn't say anything. You can't say anything nice. (laughs) You know the rest. But really, what is our life marked by? Has it been a worthwhile pursuit? A blessing to others? A displaying of an honest fear of God? Is this what others will say about us? If not... Solomon concludes, a stillborn child gets the better end of the deal. That's heavy. And I will say there are many people who have envied the stillborn whose exit from this life came before their own. Remember in Job chapter 3, Job had lost his family, he had lost his wealth, he had lost all of his livestock, he had lost much of his property. He had his wife tell him to the face, curse God and die. In chapter 3, as he's thinking on all of it, after he has sat in a heap of ashes, he said, why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? Job reasoned, maybe it's better off that I wasn't living at all, ever. It was better to miscarry at birth than to miscarry at life. Because at least the stillborn never endures pain and sees suffering and struggles with the guilt of conscious sin. They are the first to die and they are the first to find rest. And so... It's more tragic for someone to be given life and possessions and honor and not enjoy the goodness of life than the gut-wrenching tragedy of miscarriage. Why? He goes on, verse 4, For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than heat even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? In other words, if we're all going to just die anyway, what's the point of going on living and suffering and struggling if we're not enjoying life? So it seems like Solomon has put us in a dark room and closed the door. Because I think the purpose is to push us, to prod us, to get beyond the sun, to get beyond the hopelessness and the despair. We cannot live life for what's under the sun. We must get beyond it to find the true meaning. We have to find it somewhere else. You know, I've made the decision that I'm probably not going to ever go to any of my high school reunions. I missed my ten year, and I've seen enough on Facebook to know that I'm not really interested in any of the rest. But something I've thought of several times. I do wonder, of all of those that I knew and was friends with, who is still the same guy that he was then? I'm sure you all know that guy, and if not, then maybe it's you. It's like if you've seen uh, Napoleon Dynamite, Uncle Rico, back in 82, always going back to 82, always concerned about what happened then, never focusing on what's now and what's to come. And memories are great gifts from God, but if I'm still distraught, that my high school soccer team lost in the state finals to the Catholic kids, there's a problem. See, I suspect that some guys never actually let that go because nothing else is going on in life for them. Their one shot, their big game, their opportunity to do something great as if they were going to go on to win the World Cup dashed with a loss and they still think about it, they still talk about it, all these years later, as if it would make one iota of a difference today. Here's my point. If I don't get beyond the sun, nothing in life matters. And it just ends up being me hanging on to all of the what-ifs and should-haves. Thinking life would be more meaningful somehow if just something else happened a different way. If we're stuck under the sun, your honor, your riches, your possessions, they amount to nothing. He said it a hundred times already. It's vanity. It doesn't matter. And that is unbelievably sobering and unbelievably real. And I cannot tell you how many people live lives seeking the what-ifs and the should-haves and always looking backwards. Backwards. Living life under the sun. Look at verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Solomon's disappointment. Toil. Work. All for food. No satisfaction. If you're stuck under the sun, no matter your place in life, no matter your job, it all boils down essentially to one thing. This is the one of the reasons why Paul says for non-believers, their God is their stomach. Whether you're a high-profile CEO of a Fortune 500 company, or a carpenter, or a secretary, or you hand out cheese conies through a drive through window, you essentially, your efforts, your drive is all for the same thing, for food. You work for the next meal. And maybe it's a little difficult for us to see that because it's so easy for us to obtain food in our culture, but that's what we're working for essentially. If you look at other regions of the world, most of the rest of the world, this is very evident. Most people in the world spend almost their entire lives hunting, gathering, or preparing and cooking meals. And that's it. That's their life. Let me give you a few examples. Felicia and I recently have been watching uh, BBC Human Planet. We got the DVDs, and it's really cool to see how people live in the rest of the world. In this There are some incredible things, but you see their lives are mainly revolving around their next meal. For example, in Kenya, three men want to eat a wildebeest, so what do they do? They wait in the bushes, and they let 15 lions capture it, and then they face down the lions and run them off so they can steal their food. I'm sorry, I'm not going to face down 15 lions to get my food. And they said, in the end, if you don't do it, then you're a coward. Fine, I'm a coward. (laughs) Another man in the Congo of the pygmy tribes, he climbed up a 130-foot tree for three hours with an axe tied to the tree by a vine to gather honey, all the while being stung by African bees. In Botswana, two hunters in the Kalahari Desert, they spent six days in a hide to kill one kudu, which is like a deer. And then after they shot it, they tracked it for eight hours. One deer. When we travel to Nigeria, we see that before the sun rises, the men leave to the fields, the women begin chopping wood and starting fires and mixing food and cooking your entire life revolves around this. We need to eat. We need food. We need to find it. It is unreal. This nonstop effort to sustain life with food because no matter how full we get, we wake up tomorrow hungry again. Under the sun, We have a hard time finding meaning in our work, in our labors, in our toil, because it's all just to feed us, and we will hunger again. Look at verse 8. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Our desires are always traveling, but never arriving. It doesn't matter how wise we are or how much money we have. All of us have unfulfilled longings. Of course, as Solomon previously pointed out, it is better to be wise than to be a fool But even the wise under the sun are left unsatisfied. And this is a great disappointment to Solomon. Desire is unfaithful. It always wants to go out wandering, and it's never content just to stay at home. This is the wanderlust of the human soul. It's always reaching for what we think will satisfy. Remember Lot's wife? Remember, God gave her an escape from Sodom and Gomorrah. What was their only instruction? Don't look back. Press on. Press forward. Get beyond this place. Do not look back. What did she do? She looked back. She became a salt lick for the cows and horses. But this is the temptation of all of us. We want to turn from the life of life ahead of us to the death behind us because it looks like maybe, just maybe, it might satisfy, if only for a moment. And so we trade a strand of pearls for plastic beads because they have different colors and offer a little more fun that moment. For some, that is food and drink and substance. For others, it's work and sexual gratification. For some, it's TV and Internet and video games. Whatever it is, our wandering appetites want to be filled on something, so they reach and they plead and they never find it. But the absolute truth is that only God can satisfy through His Word, through worship, through prayer, all by the help of the Holy Spirit. All of us have times when we are feeling empty and we're left wanting. Why not turn to God? Lord, you know how empty I feel right now. Help me to not run. Help me to not seek satisfaction in fleeting things. Teach me that you, Lord, are enough for me. By your grace, give me peace. Give me joy in Jesus alone we must constantly be turning to the Lord, admitting the weakness of our flesh, the fallenness of our hearts, and our longings for the world. Look at verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Ask the Lord to help you see that what you have already been given is a gift from Him. Ask him to help you to enjoy what's already before you instead of dreaming and groping for the bigger and better that will never satisfy. If you're unhappy and ungrateful for what he has provided, then if he were to provide it for you again, you'll just be ungrateful again and continually be coming back to him demanding an upgrade. You might ask yourself, why am I not satisfied? Because I'm greedy, because I'm covetous, because I'm proud. There's something wrong with me. I'm wicked and I need to enjoy what's been given to me before I can pursue anything else. Because if my heart is wrong, it doesn't matter what comes. I'm not going to enjoy that either. Our appetite is for things that cannot satisfy. And he moves into verses 10 through 12 at the end of the chapter. This is the C'est la vie verses of Ecclesiastes. That's French. Such is life. Look at verses 10 through 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? At this point, we're essentially halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes, and Solomon is still on the same point. There is nothing new under the sun. Names have already been assigned. Everything is labeled and categorized. And the human condition is still the same since Adam. And it's all vanity and it's all striving after wind. Martin Luther said of this passage, As things have been, so they still are. And as things are, so they will be. And listen, we can hate this truth. We can rail against this truth. We can even say it's not true. But we can't do anything to change it. Maybe you're thinking, I don't buy it. I live for money and new toys and I'm pretty happy. I have a good time. Really? Did you ever stop to think that maybe you're living life on a treadmill? As long as you're living life under the sun... You might get a good hard workout from time to time, but you never move. You never actually go anywhere. Why is it when you go to gyms, over the treadmills you see TVs with sports and news and talk shows, and you see people on treadmills with their iPods? We're all looking for distractions so we're not thinking about the fact that we're on a treadmill. It helps us to forget about it. Oh, yeah. I'm not actually going anywhere. Look, if you're living life under the sun, Solomon is making clear to you your life since day one has been on a treadmill. You're not going anywhere. You might have a lot of distractions to help you forget about that fact, but you're there. You're there. And guess what Solomon points out in verse 10? Verse 10. God has decreed it all to be this way. There is absolutely no sense whatsoever in arguing with God about it. There's no sense in arguing with God about the way things are. In verse 10, he talks of the one that is stronger than he. He's speaking of God. It's important that we know our limits. You will not out-talk and you will not outwisdom God. Many have sought to argue with God and it doesn't go well. Remember in Job chapter 42? After chapter, after chapter, after chapter... Job and his friends are going back and forth and back and forth about why he's suffering the way that he is. And eventually he gets to a place where he starts to reveal his heart. that He's not satisfied fully in this. He's asking, why? What, what is all of this about? Why did God do this to me? Why, why, why? And then we see several chapters of job getting a complete and total beat down by god he says job get loid up your uh, gird up your loins are you ready for this here it comes and then we see chapters of god rebuking job job remind me uh where were you when i put the sun out there uh Tell me, Job, where were you when I laid all the sand on the shores? That's right. You weren't. You weren't. I did that, and I hold all of it in the fringes. And so Job's response at the end of all of it is, that he says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. We see his fortune restored. We see his joy restored. Listen, we will not alter the way that things are made. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this in Romans chapter 9. He says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Well, the big question is who's in charge and give us all a hint. It's not us. I always get a kick at sporting events, watching players and coaches argue with referees and umpires. My dad did some refereeing work when I was growing up, so I kind of feel for the guys you notice nobody goes to the game to cheer for them. Nobody's there to cheer on the referee. Good call. It's always quite the opposite. But who controls the game? Who's in charge out there? They are. And not one one single time have I ever, ever seen a referee or an umpire change their call because a coach or a player yelled at them or spit at them or threw a base or a chair or kicked a ball into the stands, whatever. What's the point of arguing with them? They call it and their word stands. It's not changing. And such is life with God. He calls it. God rules over all human history. God is ultimately in charge and his word stands. Where you live, where you work, how it's all going to play out, God said it, and there is no appeal. I don't like it. Well, because we think maybe we can be a better God and make better decisions. We have a better plan. Now listen, don't hear me saying that your decisions and your actions don't matter. They absolutely do. But ultimately, those decisions and those actions work into the sovereign plan of our sovereign God. So you can talk about it, you can write a thesis about it, you can rail against the reality of your life, but the fact is you can't change it. And the more you try to argue and dispute against it, it only adds to the futility of life under the sun. There are difficult, confusing, harsh things that will happen in this world that we may never understand. But the answer to that is not just to stack more words upon words. Deuteronomy 29:29 29, 29 reminds us the secret things belong to the Lord. So what good comes from more and more and more and more words to bemoan your condition? Have you no trust in a sovereign God? People tend to talk more about what they understand the least. That's what talk radio is, I'm convinced. It's like getting a PhD. You know more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. I just want God to tell me. Well, Paul writes, we see in part and we know in part, but we're looking through a dim glass. There's a lot that we just won't understand. There's a lot that we just won't know. So... Is our response then just to turn from God and seek our pleasure elsewhere? Just to trust in the reality, the fact that God is sovereign, God is good, God does love us. And even though I don't understand it, I trust that he's working these things, as we just read in Romans 8, working these things for my good and nothing can separate me from that. So Solomon asks, what is the advantage of man to heap up more and more words against the sovereign decrees of God? What do we do? Are we saying this is just helpless, that we just sit back and watch it happen and we're supposed to just deal with it? Well, life under the sun is meaningless. It is futility. We must get beyond that. To find anything meaningful, anything refreshing, anything satisfying about life, We have to get beyond the sun. Let me give you an example of this. It blows me away every time I read it. Many of you know of the missionary to Burma, Adoniram Judson. Over the course of his life, he was married three times. Each of his wives died. Seven of his 13 children died at very young ages. With his first wife, Anne, he had three children. All of them died. When they're... After their second child died, Anne, his wife, wrote this in her journal. Our hearts were bound up with this child. We felt that he was our earthly all, our only source of innocent recreation in this heathen land. But God saw it was necessary to remind us of our error and to strip us of our only little all. Oh, may it not be vain that he has done it. May we so improve it that he will stay his hand and say, It is enough. In other words, what sustained Adoniram Judson and his three wives was a rock-solid confidence that God is sovereign and God is good. And all things come from his hand for the good. Sometimes it's an incredibly painful good. But it's good. When Job lost everything, what did he say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How can we have such confidence in the midst of such heartbreak and tragedy? It's life beyond the sun. Joy in the midst of suffering and sorrow is found in part when we first admit the limitations of our knowledge. We can only do that beyond the sun. How? Well, first we have to locate it. It takes a lot of courage and honesty for us to admit, I am living life under the sun. And the only way you will ever get beyond it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look again at verses 11 and 12. The more words, the more vanity. What is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The answer, God. Only God. How do we know God? through Jesus Christ. Our rescue from life under the sun was most decisively accomplished for us by another, and it was outside of us. In other words, Christ did something in history before we existed and obtained and guaranteed our rescue and the transformation of all who would come to trust in him. So the distinctive and crucial thing about Christian salvation is that Christ accomplished it decisively for us and outside of us without our help. And when we put our faith in Him, we do not add to the sufficiency of what He has accomplished in covering our sins and achieving the righteousness that counts as ours. Listen from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. The Apostle Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The last words there are most crucial. This, the record of death that stood against us, God set aside and nailed it to the cross. It did not happen in you. It did not help happen with help from you. But if you were a Christian, most certainly it happened for you, outside of you. And I want to make sure that you see the most glorious of all truths because this is the way out from under the sun. God took record of all your sins that made you a debtor to his wrath. And instead of holding them up in front of your face and using them as the warrant to send you to hell, he put them in the palm of his son's hand and nailed them to the cross. And what does Hebrews 11 say? That suffering beyond all suffering was for Jesus. What was it? He says it was joy for him. It was joy. Jesus considered the cross joy because of what the shameful cross accomplished. Listen, this life is not all that there is. And Jesus proved it when he died and resurrected. And our burial as Christians is a sure sign of our resurrection from the dead. Look, I'm not saying in the end life will not be confusing or tough or frustrating. But I am saying that all questions of this life find their answer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take God at his word. He is good. He loves us. Jesus ascended to prepare a place for us with him in the presence of the Father. How do we not delight in that? Without Christ, life is lived under the sun and is completely hopeless. But in Christ, life is lived beyond the sun and under heaven. And all of a sudden, we find meaning and purpose in all of it, even the mundane. Because of the gospel, God brings it all full circle and his grace gives us everything. He gives us new purpose and new meaning. By his grace, he gives us new life. And so the call to live under heaven and not under the sun is to live by faith. We've seen for six chapters, you can have it all, but without God you have no joy and it's all vanity. Revelation 2.10 says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So it shall be. By the grace of God, beyond the sun, on the last of all days, we are here today, but we shall in the end be crowned tomorrow. What joy. What joy. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the reminder of the reality that while this, ro- this world is broken and fallen and hard and stressful and painful and full of distress and full of suffering, That you're not caught off guard. That you're not sitting back helpless. But that in your way and in your time, you are doing all things well. And you're doing them to bring greater glory to yourself. And to bring joy to your people. Lord, we realize from your word that the harsh reality of this life is that each and every one of us in one way or another will suffer. Help us, Lord, not to despair. Help us not to turn from you. Help us to not look to find Rest or satisfaction in anything that we find under the sun. Help us to look to Christ, our only source of true joy, who endured the cross with joy because of what was to be accomplished for us, outside of us, on our behalf, that we would receive his righteousness as he took upon himself our sin. You are so good to us, Lord. And I pray that you help us all remember your kindness, your care, your comfort, your love, your grace and mercy. Help us, Lord, to get beyond the sun. To look for meaning in what otherwise looks meaningless because We have Christ. Help us, Lord, to love you, to desire you, to trust in you, even when we don't understand. You are good, and we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.